Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Oteil Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, Join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. Hi friends, welcome to the Helping Friendly Podcast. This is episode 169. You've got Matt here and with me uh, here also as well is Jonathan. Hey man. Hey, how's it going? It is going awesome. Uh, I We're going to dive back into uh, our backtracking series on this episode. Uh, continue with the next Fish Studio record, which is a picture of Nectar. And I'm pretty excited to, uh, to talk, talk about this one. Yeah, me too. I I just like to get it out of the way. All of those of you out there who don't listen to Fish albums, if you haven't listened to this one, you're really you're screwing up. Bad. <laughs> so, All right, but we got some other stuff first, right? Let's talk into. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we're back uh, after last episode where we introduced a new feature called Drew's Corner. Hope everybody liked that. Uh, we saw a lot of good feedback on the internet and whatnot for our buddy Drew and uh, the way that he was able to break down uh, some of the the uh, tit- musical tidbits, if you will, from twelve thirty one ninety three. And uh, yeah, the idea there is that we've got somebody. You know, we talk about music a lot. I talk about 
music a lot. Uh, we've got varying degrees of knowledge about music, and Drew is a bona fide expert. He's a professional musician. He's a teacher. And we've always wanted to have him on a little bit more frequently just to kind of get uh, a true musician's perspective on some of what he's hearing, because I think we do a pretty good job of talking about the music, but um, not to the degree that somebody like Drew can. So um, once again, I hope you guys really dug that episode. Yeah, but I hope he's not listening to this because you're going to really inflate his head. You know, he's just a tuba player. <laughs> he's I mean, he's going to request more than a corner next time. <laughs> no, I, I really, I thought it was great. Um, and I, I didn't hear any of it in advance or anything at all. So I, I went into it cold, just like any listener. And uh, I had a great time digging on it. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so as far as good podcasts go, um, we, uh, we've got a couple of things along those lines. Um, I want to thank everybody. We, we've had some really cool reviews on Apple podcasts, uh, in the recent, uh, couple of months. And, um, we, we ask you guys to, to do that so much to go on and, you know, review us. And we talk about how much it helps. It really does help with things like rankings and stuff like that, uh, and discovery for when people are going to, um, you know, get turned on to a new podcast podcasts such as ours. Um, but it's, it's really awesome when people follow through and especially go beyond just hitting a five star thing in the, uh, in the review pane and actually go to the trouble of writing something up. And, and Jonathan, I think you found a couple of great recent examples, right? Yeah. So, um, I brought bad review. I mean, good reviews. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So this first one that I'm going to read, this was just left a few days ago. Uh, and, uh, Schooled by writes, if I could only tune into one fish podcast, this would be it. Love the quick hit steering tour and the topical deep dives. You know, that probably took them all of like 30 seconds to type uh, along with hitting five stars. And I'm going to feel good about that for a while. So that's really nice and really cool. Uh, and another one here. RJ, Matt, and Jonathan do an excellent job reviewing recent shows and touching on all the dynamic aspects of the best band and its community 36 years in. I, I guess they don't like Brad's work. I'm not sure. I'm sorry, Brad. Um, uh, I'm sure it was just a uh, oversight while they were trying to get it in there in their 30 seconds. But I just figured Brad actually wrote that. Oh, that's probably it. Yeah. Uh, Brad, a.k.a. Ava underscore baby. Um, that's a good good nickname for him. There you go. So. Awesome. Yeah, but thank you all very much, everybody who has taken the time to review us and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever your podcasts are sold. Um, just, you know, all the stars would be very helpful. It does really does help more people find the show and uh, it makes us feel good, which is which is great. Sweet. So speaking of great podcasts, uh, of course, you all know that we are a proud member uh, of the Osiris Podcast Network, and we've got lots of great uh, shows uh, that have been coming out the last couple of months and a lot of great things uh, in store for 2020. Anything in particular that you've been listening to lately, Jonathan? Well, I will tell you, I checked out this week the first episode of a brand new show from Bob Crawford of the Avett Brothers and the podcast Road to Now. He's got a new show called The Politics of Truth. And I don't talk politics. Well, we don't talk politics on this show. I don't talk politics on my own podcast, but I am a follower of politics and those things. And Bob Crawford has a great eye to history and politics that are and the things that are happening right now uh he brought in Bob, uh, robert costas i'm gonna get that all wrong you're gonna have to fix that matt i just I totally gaffled that guy brought in a great guest and they talked about you know the iowa caucuses and they talk about uh, music and he's planning to have musicians on there to talk about you know where politics and their work as artists intersect and uh, i think it's going to be a great show uh, the first one was really good and more to come Sweet. Yeah. Um, I haven't had a chance to listen to that one yet, but I have been absolutely loving Freak Flag Flying, um, yes. which is a mouthful, uh, but it's worth saying and it's worth listening to. Um, and I think there's actually going to be like a follow-up episode as well uh, featuring Tom Marshall and Steve Silberman, right? Did you hear something about that, Jonathan? Yeah, that's correct. I think that should be out any minute now, um, <laughs> if it's not already by the time ours is out. Um, but you know, one of the, I, I've got to pile on here a little bit. Uh, the, it's, it's limited in the time, but they cover a lot of ground. Oh, yeah. They, yeah, I for mean, sure. They... they they touch on his earliest years. They talk about, you know, some uncomfortable subjects, I think. Um, but 
because they've got a very good friendship that it's, you know, Steve's able to ask these questions and get David to answer them um, very honestly. And they uh, they incorporate some of the music, both his new music and some of the older stuff. And uh, it's it's been a delight to listen to. I'm a huge David Crosby fan, and I think like a lot of people in the past probably you know five years or so, I've really come to appreciate him even more than I had before. Like you know, I've I've been a CSNY fan since I was a you know a, a kid, and um, but I'm always like a Neil guy, you know, and I'm like like I like I love Stills, you know, Stills has just got kind of this badass thing about him. But David Crosby now, it's just like he's got this amazing view on the world um, and on his life. And I think one of the things that it kind of reminded me was to dive back into his catalog and particularly his recent catalog. Cause he, you know, they say this a couple times during the show and I, th- I think I agree with it. He's probably making some of the best music of his life uh, on his past, you know, three albums or so. So, all right. So enough of, n- enough of that stuff. Go listen to podcasts. Podcasts are good. You're listening to one now. Um, we, as I mentioned before, at the head of the episode, we are going to get back into our backtracking series here. Uh, and we're going to talk about a picture of Nectar. We've talked about uh, the first three studio albums leading up to this point. Um, and we're going to get to this one from 1992. So let's go ahead and do it. I was surprising myself earlier when I was listening to this record because I didn't think that there was necessarily anything special about it in terms of my career with fish. And then I realized, uh, that that was not the case, but let's start with you, Jonathan. What, where does this kind of fall in terms of your trajectory with getting into the band and when it came out and all that kind of stuff? This is the door, man. Um, February 92, I was a senior in high school I'm pretty sure my buddy Ben Taylor had this on cassette and said, you should listen to this. Um, he just, he knew, he knew me. Uh, and uh, that guy's got a pretty good musical sense to this day. So um, yeah, he let me borrow the tape and it kind of, it altered me slightly. Um, I had to give it back and went and picked up my own and uh, stayed with me for a while. Went off to college, and we were listening to this and Junta, and yeah, I mean that's that was the beginning. I didn't see them for two more years, but I was listening, and uh, this is where it began. Yes. Yeah, so How about you? Uh, well, it's funny because I mean I, this was obviously well after the fact, but um, this was the first uh, Studio Fish album that I got. Um, I. Uh, you know, I was getting into the band. I got a live one as a lot of people do kind of tour through that. A friend of mine had, uh, Hampton comes alive. We listened to that a lot. I was hearing tracks from farmhouse because it was kind of coming out at this point. Um, but the first one I actually went to the record store and bought was a picture of nectar. And I think for no reason other than I probably went to the record store, dug through the, the fish bin looked at the songs that were on every album and went, Oh, I recognize the most songs, you know, on this one, I'll, I'll go ahead and get it. But it wound up being pretty, uh, key to my development in terms of fish, because it does have a lot of my favorite songs on it. And it kind of shaped the way that I, I looked at their studio output. Um, interesting note, it's kind of a first for fish as well. This was the first album that they recorded. Uh, their, it's their major label debut. Essentially. This was the first album that they recorded for, uh, for Electra. Yep. And, uh, after this came out, Electra went ahead and reissued, Lawn Boy and Junta on CD in the nice long boxes, which I had stapled or whatever attached to my wall in my parents' house. <laughs> um, yeah, they were they were useful for something. I don't know what, but you know, very wasteful. Hey man, but, uh, anti-theft device, right? Yeah, right. Um, well, it was so they could reuse the record bins. Oh, right. Yeah, actually, yeah, that's yeah. why they had them. But yeah. Um, yeah, I'm showing my age. Sorry. Uh, why don't we get into all those great songs? <laughs> let's, yeah, let's do it. So, so um, yeah, a couple, well, a couple other quick things about the album. So it comes out February 1992. Uh, was recorded in the summer of 1991 in Vermont. Um, little uh, trivia tidbit: uh, engineer on this record was John Altschiller, who would later go on to be the uh, the mix engineer for the Live Fish recordings for uh, a number of years. Uh, he's not doing that anymore, but um, he now does a lot of mixing for the Bruce Springsteen releases that come out and Dave Matthews 
the band and things like that. So um, this kind of was the the origin of him working uh, with Fish way back in '92. Oh, nice pull on that one. Yeah, um, I would say you know they recorded this in summer '91. If you go to the fall '91 stuff, you can hear some of the tones and some of the energies that you hear in some of these tracks, and we'll get into some of those. Uh, a little bit later on. Uh, This thing kicks off with a true smoker, speaking of energy, Llama, which is the the early version of the latter-day hit known as Slow Llama. (laughs) And uh, it's it's a... Oh, my God. What a a way to launch a record. Yeah, it really is. And, um, you know, I mean, a a big-time common show opener at this point as well. Um, One of the things that I noted about this record when I listened to it today... I feel like with it, with only a few exceptions, it's actually a very good representation of like what the flow of a fish show would have been like at that point. Um, they did a great job of structuring it. Now, most of the material as well was relatively new, um, but as opposed to you know a lot of other bands that you know if they've got kind of new material that they're putting on their third record, it's very fresh and they've just written it. And they're recording it and they're putting it out. Um, Fish, because they were playing live relentlessly, did have, you know, at least six months of playing this stuff live before they went into the studio and were actively touring throughout the summer when they um, when they they recorded it. So it's got this freshness to it, but also with that sort of, you know, we tried it out on stage. We know what the song really needs to be. And I think that's, you know, you get something like Llama that is such a great opener, starts out so energetic. That comes directly from playing it on stage, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, everybody's energy is just to the max. Uh, and this is this is what you, you expect to hear from this song, uh, even live, unless it's Slow Llama. Yeah, which, which case, it's a whole nother monster. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, it's funny because, you know, they had to create a slow version of this song tells you how kind of, you know, incendiary all of the parts are. Um, all the instruments, even the, you know, the lyrics are kind of difficult to get out uh, if you really sing it at speed. Um, a funny thing that I've discovered about that, uh, if you go to the Wikipedia page uh, and read up on Llama, um, this song, which uh, came Came out when fish songs were added to the video game Rock Band 3. Um, it was only the second song ever in the series to have a what they call a full impossible rating where every single instrument that you can play is you, there's like an option for it to be like as difficult as the game gets um and the first one after they added the keyboard uh to to the video game so i remember this stuff coming out at the time that that stuff came out i was living in a house with a a handful of other guys and we would play rock band um and i of course was like you know jumping right on playing the getting the fish content and would make these guys play it and they hated it just because the songs were so (laughs) difficult to play and we're talking about people that played this video game for like you know three four hours a night and just like could not play these songs wow um Sorry, I come from Missile Command, dude. This is uh, it's not very relatable content here, Matt. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, that's a, that's fascinating. Actually, that's that's crazy. I'm not surprised that it was quote impossible rated. Um, yeah. Uh, so then we go into uh, the next track, Eliza, which is a uh, um, beautiful instrumental track. Something that hasn't been played live since 1992. That was played live, uh, I believe, about a dozen times. Um, this kind of is in the spirit of some of these earlier uh, instrumental songs, uh, some of which appear on this record. But, you know, I think about things like All Things Reconsidered, the Okipa Ceremony, um, uh, you know, other similar kind of little instrumental things that have kind of disappeared to varying degrees uh, since the, the early 90s when they got a lot of play. But it's a it's a beautiful little piece. definitely gave my firstborn the name Eliza as her middle name and definitely got it from this song and it's um, I 
I can't even comment on it. I mean, it's just I can hear it in my head at, at any given moment, and it gives me chills. It's beautiful. And if Fish were to play that for me, if I ever see Fish again, um, that was a comment on Summer Tour, by the way, uh, then, um, yeah, I would probably die. A very happy man. It seems like this is the kind of song that they could bring back and it could be like a, almost like a linking piece in the second set between two big jams. You know what I mean? Like they'd have to have it in their back pocket rehearsed and ready to go. But like, it's almost like a, just a quick two minute breather where if you were coming out of like a intense, you know, tweezer, and then you're going to go into Mike song or something like that, you know, it could just be like a, just a quick exhale reset and start the, the next part of the, uh, the madness. I wouldn't complain if they replaced I am hydrogen with it. That's a good um, call. But, you know, they could drop it in the middle of a first set. I would be happy with that. They could uh, they could open with it. I, I Probably I alone would be happy with that because um, everybody else wants Llama or whatever. But, uh, yeah, it's a great piece, and I would love to hear it again. Um, and then we get Cavern, which is um, it's a little bit weird placement. But, you know, the, the song itself is just so weird, frankly. I'm going to just come right out and say it cavern baffled me completely when i first heard it on this tape this album and it it continued to do so for quite a while i mean i just like what the hell are they singing about what the music the structure of it was just a little odd it kind of rocked it it was just weird it's weird song for me it's a very weird song. Uh, this is the one song that I noted that is kind of out of place on the album in terms of where it's sequenced. Um, you know, like I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, most of the songs seem to go where they belong within the structure of like a fish set. Um, Cavern, obviously a typical closer and, and it gets this really early spot uh, in the show. So maybe it's just from having heard it close sets so long that it's, you know, feels strange for it to be so early in the set. Um, but I don't know. Did you, did you get any of that or does it, does it just kind of work for you? I mean, it kind of works for me. I think, I, I think I'm still just too weirded out by the song itself. I mean, I still kind of think it's a weird song. Um, <laughs> like but i like it but uh it, it yeah it doesn't really uh i don't know i wouldn't put it at the end of this record i'll tell you that because well, i think this record ends beautifully yeah it does absolutely absolutely you know although maybe it, you know yeah I, I think you're right about that and um it's this version i noted it's a little bit slower and funkier than uh a lot of the live versions um and i'll mention this once or twice uh for other songs but um I have this theory that for a lot of the early material, I think Trey was really using Frank Zappa as his kind of main vocal inspiration. This is one of those songs where I think he was, with his singing, he was kind of trying to to imitate Zappa. I I don't know if we've ever read an interview or heard an interview where he's cl- uh, admitted that, but I think you're onto something. The flesh from Satan's dogs will make the rudiments of gruel. Duck the carrots from your pain, you worthless swampy fool. Exploding them through fields and fen, and swimming in the mire. The septic maple's gargoyle too, demented me with fire. I drifted where the current chose, afloat upon my back. And if the chance of food slide by, Poor Heart comes next. Yes. Thankfully, Poor Heart has basically been around all this time. You know, everybody knows probably I'm down with the fish bluegrass. This is a great example and no exception to my, you know, my universal love of fish and bluegrass. Um, uh, You mentioned, I'm going to give... I'm going to give away the secrets. You have some, we have notes here and a shared notes and you're going to mention Gordon Stone. I'll let you talk about what he does on this track, but I will say Gordon Stone who resurfaces on Rift uh, was a Burlington area cat. He was established in the progressive bluegrass front and everybody should check out his solo work as well as his work in the group Pine Island. I've got a couple of their records. They're weird and good and uh, very, very worth checking out. 
Yeah, so Gordon Stone, I think, is the key ingredient in this song. Um, I think it's the best that Fish has ever played bluegrass. Um, They uh, tend to... Even actually, especially in the '94 sessions with um, with the Reverend Jeff Mosier, they lose, they or at least struggle with the sort of percussive drive forward um, that bluegrass can really have. When you see really, really, truly great bluegrass cats, it has this momentum to the playing that is just nearly impossible uh, to get down. I mean, if you think about, you know every instrument like flat picking guitar it there's no pause or hesitation to it it's and it's it's a wonder when i look at it how these guys can play the the thing that stuck out to me along those lines was the the banjo and the pedal steel and i had to double check the liner notes because um nothing against mike he's a fine banjo player but he doesn't play the banjo like this and i had to you know double check to confirm that it was gordon stone playing the banjo as well because it just has this like driving rolling claw hammer thing going on with the banjo i can't track you anymore detective work is sure to become a bore so tell me what you did with it stop this shit give up yourself before they come knocking at your door you won't steal my poor heart again you won't steal my poor heart again This is one of the only songs that actually had been around for a little while. Uh, this was not like a new 1990 song. Um, they had played this as early as 1988. Uh, it's on the Colorado 88 album. And then we go another direction. Matt, I, you have some good thoughts here on this stash, and I'd like, to, I'd like you to lead with them, if you could. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of interesting things about stash. It's the closest to a true jazz to, uh, tr- tune that Trey has ever composed, um, he has admitted that that's in part because it's kind of modeled after the the, the tune Jump Monk. Um, but it's also the classic tension and release jamming example that everybody goes to when they want to talk about tension and release, although it's not... Um, it's not the only example it, it, that stuff happens all over the place, but it's the be- easiest one to look at um, and one that Trey has spoken about being kind of the, the best example. And it's this sort of like classic Tom Marshall lyrics that are kind of nonsense, but the syllables that are chosen at every place form this really exciting lyric that to my mind it's never mattered that it it doesn't mean anything at least not to me because the lyrics are just like so well formulated um and fun to listen to and fun fun to sing i'm pulling the pavement from under my nails i brush past a garden dependent on whales the sloping companion i cast down the ash yanked out my tunic and dangled my stash zipping through the forest with a curling fleas to grow with them spindles the mutant i sees Beast who falls to his knees and cries to his cohorts asleep in the trees. Is it nonsense? I mean, it makes sense to me. Uh, maybe I've just been in the shows, uh, it, and maybe I don't want to admit this on microphone. Anyways, um, <laughs> that makes good sense to me. I, I I don't know what anybody else is complaining about. Uh, I just always, you know, have this image in my mind of a tunic getting yanked down and it's this just search as you're trying to get into the show and uh, no i don't know there's some sort of i i once had a whole story in my brain about what this song meant and i know it's just in my brain but that's all i need um but that's it a solid performance of stash it's interesting to look at these songs like if when they were new when the record was new there's not a lot to look back on at that time although they'd been playing stash for a little bit and i think some of the fall 91 versions of stash are really tight and very similar to what we have here uh, one of my favorites is the uh, gothic theater show 11191 and like that one this one has got this just very high tension uh, but it you know they resolve it nicely 
And I also have to shout out Trey's tone. His guitar tone on this is so good. So good. It is, it is really great. I, I, I made that same note a couple of different places. Um, his tone is absolutely amazing. I think this is really when he was coming into his own uh, as far as the tone. You know, it's funny when you I, – I was thinking about this for a couple of different songs. Um, and maybe this is a good segue into talking about Manteca because this is one of the songs that I was thinking about this. Um, so if you think about like the the – place and time where they were doing this is summer 91. So, uh, you know, Arrowhead ranch horns tour, right. Um, they, they're doing all of that stuff. They're recording the record. The horns are not on the record though. Um, it would have been easy to kind of, you know, adapt that, bring those guys into the studio. It is even stranger in the fact that this is probably them that has the most of their sort of jazz inspired tunes. You've got stash and Manteca and Magilla, um, even landlady, you know, has a little bit of kind of like a Calypso thing. Um, and yet they don't take that live sound that they had worked on and apply it to the record. They just sort of take like the ethos of what they were doing with the horns in the composition and the record and put it on there, but just with four piece fish. Yeah. But you'd have to pay the Horton players and, uh, and it would really define a lot of the sound of the band if that's if you if the first major label record and the big whammy songs like Stash and Cavern and what have you have the horns on them, it would really define expectations, what people ex- think the band should sound like. Uh, I think that. There's every reason to have put them on there because, as you're right, you're right. They, you know, worked. They had all these charts. They had a great, complete sound with them. They were playing it that very summer. But at the same time, this is an opportunity for the band. Plus, you know, Gordon Stone, a little, you know, a little bit of inflection here and there to really show what they sound like. And you know, Gordon just kind of, he just adds a little bit. I mean, it's very important, but it doesn't really take away from sounding like fish whereas bringing horns in is that's a that's another thing i think yeah so well i think you're absolutely right i mean that's that's i think it speaks to the the level of restraint that they had to show to not just say oh okay first you know major label record we're gonna go out with bang let's beef up the band let's get the horns and everything like that they kept it true to themselves and think about how many times after that they put horns on a record right i mean starting with starting with hoist there's horns on almost every record yeah well you know at that point they were i don't know Figured they were going to go ahead and play with all of Electra's money. And... <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so we mentioned Manteca. Um, you know, you go from a, uh, a tune inspired by a Mingus composition into an actual Dizzy Gillespie tune. Um, I've always liked Manteca. I love it when it appears in a show. Um, but I don't know. What do you think about it kind of being on represented on the record? I always thought it was Manteca, but um, <laughs> I think it's a weird call for this record, man. I don't know why it's there. They can play this, they can play it, but their arrangement of this is is almost more a vocal thing than it is a an instrumental thing. It's just it's just a weird call to me. If there's anything that I would pull off of this record, it would be that. Honest to God, I I, I don't. It's fine. It kind of works here, I guess, but I don't know why they did it. Grabbing my shoe Grabbing my shoe Grabbing my shoe I think I think you're absolutely right. I think I think this is the this is the the weak link, but it is a, like 25 seconds. So. Oh yeah, I mean it's not it's not wasting a lot of space. And <laughs> I mean, they were making on. a CD. Exactly. They weren't this trying is, to fit it on the two sides. This is 1992, man. They're trying to they're trying to put 74 minutes of music on this thing. You know, I mean they they could have put in like narration tracks and stories and stuff like every hip hop record at the time was. Or doing. at least one answering machine message. <laughs> by the way i mean that's actually a good point that's one of the other kind of i think 
high level things I thought about this record. It it sounds like a record made in 1992 to me. It's very like there's a lot of like reverb on the drums and the drum, but the drums are very snappy and like it just makes me think of like you know like Pearl Jam 10. It it kind of sounds like that like in a certain. I'm thinking more like better than Ezra or something like something like that. Yeah, there's a lot of (laughs) records that had this kind of sound to it, which actually some of these subsequently have been kind of remixed to like pull back some of the reverb and stuff like that. But even that at the time felt so different compared to what was happening in the eighties. It did feel a little bit more real and raw, but it just shows you kind of the, the continuum. Um, I don't, I, I think this is a pretty good sounding record. It was the last one that was recorded, mixed and mastered to analog tape. Um, but I don't think it sounds as good as the two records that preceded it, which is kind of crazy since it's their their major label debut. Um, but uh, Junta and Lawn Boy, as I kind of discussed ad nauseum when we covered those records, I think are just fantastic sounding albums. This sounds pretty good, but it definitely sounds like an early 90s kind of typical record. Yeah, I think it's the mastering of the day is really what we're looking at and hearing. Uh, so then we get into Gula Papyrus. And this is the other one that I always kind of sticks out in my mind, uh, or maybe second of three examples on this record. Um, that's very like Trey trying to sing like Zappa. Um, he's very like eg- exaggerated nasally vocals. A board of craft bereft of ore. I run upstream to find Lenore. Abducted by a bandit or a king from some forgotten war. Mindful of his lava craze, the rhinothropic microgaze. Ignored it into my amazement, go to Paris in 12 days. I like Gula. I, I like Gula Live. I like it on the record. I think it sounds pretty cool. But for me, I'm all about, and this is no joking, I'm not just making plays on the names. I'm all about the Ass Festival segment of it on here. Um, you can throw out whatever technical term, musical terms you need to describe it. I find that it's transportational. It spirals me up into the cosmos. I love it. I think it's well portrayed here on this record. I think this is kind of the last of those um, fugish or canonish uh, kind of composed pieces that Trey put on record. At least there's there's like some components of Gaiuti, I guess. That That's you could say. exactly where I was going. I don't uh, know that it ever. But kind I don't of, know if they quite get there. Yeah, it's it's not quite the same. But um, in any event, um, Gula Papyrus also, by the way, one of two songs on this record that has its own dance. Uh, so, um, and a third one, which we'll, we'll get to, which had not necessarily a dance, but a, another coordinated, uh, kind of, uh, move that was done live. So they were definitely into the physicality of these types of things on stage at this point. I should say that I have a dance for almost all of these songs, except for the ones they refused to play for me, uh, live and in person. Yeah. These, we're, these, we're talking <laughs> dance steps, not just boogies. Oh, oh No. Very specific steps. <laughs> All right. But I think you're talking about what the band does. And yes. That's, that yes, is, of exactly. course, yeah, there's two plus one. Yeah, exactly. On and, uh, so uh, next up is another song. Speaking of songs, they don't play for me. Uh, Megilla. Um, and I know I'll probably never see it, but uh, that actually kind of makes it a highlight every time I listen to the record because I'm like, ah, oh, Megilla. It's a great freaking song, and it's a page tune. Yes. Well, as the uh, pedantic ally would uh, have you remember, they do tease it in every single simple these days. So you well, get to, you get to hear it. That's that's not the same. You never it's saw cool. uh, you never saw Trey Band do it. Also, not the same. Uh, yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. I saw that a lot. Um, we'll just we'll leave that at that. No, um, <laughs> and another jazz tune. So we're still in the mindset of a lot of jazz influence. Um, but this one is actually a page composition. Uh, it's great. Um, 
I like the, uh, going back to the sound, the early 90s jazz tone on Mike's bass, very sort of trebly finger kind of uh, thing going on from Mike, which you just don't hear from him at any other point. Uh, but uh, it's kind of it's kind of cool. Yeah, Mike and Mike does sound great on this. All right, so let's uh, take a quick break, and we will be back in just a second to talk about the rest of A Picture of Nectar. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. All right, let's cover it. Uh, let's get back to a picture of Nectar. We uh, we kick off this second half with The Landlady, which is has maybe like the craziest history of any fish song in terms of being a part of uh, Punch You in the Eye, then not, then getting drafted back and sort of getting shelved. But now it's like a tune on its own again that gets played every once in a while and Trey Band also will play it sometimes and stuff so um, I don't know what do you what do you think about the landlady I love the landlady but it pisses me off that I'll probably never see it because they bring punch you in the eye back uh, right when I started seeing fish which is awesome punch you in the eye is awesome uh, so it's not really a complaint but yeah no they're just they just don't want to play it live for me um, Hey, you never know, yeah. man. I mean, they played it in Mexico last year, and they've played it at Dick's and stuff, so... Yeah, I, I said they don't want to play it for me. Ah, uh, okay, so they, <laughs> they get the, the special bat signal that you're there, and... Uh... They follow my Twitter, just so they know what not to play when, yeah. <laughs> Yet another song uh, with a dance. Um, yep. Uh, so actually, this is like uh, they're almost in a row with McGill in there. Uh, that doesn't have a dance, but then Landlady does. Um, and uh, this is another one actually that it's funny because this, I guess, had been around for a little while because of Punch You in the Eye, which debuted in uh, 88, I want to say. Without sure. checking the Fish Companion, we're going to say 88. It might be 89. This will give you all something that you can tweet at me and say, you're wrong. You're wrong. This is when it debuted. Um, I, I, I would be telling you that right now, but my Fish Companion is on the other side of my dead base, and I just can't reach it from here. I mean, I am sitting at a computer right now with the web browser open. The, but uh, That's not going to do you any good. There's yeah, no information out know, there on the Internet. I know. If only there were information about fish on the Internet. We'll just oh, let well. that one go to the ether. Another song with movement to it, Glide, uh, is the next track on the album. And this is another early one. Um, uh, noted in the actual liner notes uh, that it was uh, written around 1981 by Trey and Tom and Dave Abrams and some of the other cats that uh, they were hanging out with and writing tunes at, with at that point, and that Fish resurrected it, uh, took it off the shelf, dusted it off. And, uh, and started playing it. Um, really great execution of this song. I've, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Glide, so um, really love this one. Thank you. 
Yeah, it's great. And you uh, you didn't say it, but you mentioned in your notes that they did not put the lyrics in the uh, in the liner notes. But you know, I don't think uh, they needed to. They're etched in my soul. <laughs> yes, um, uh, that's it. So that's I'm glad you brought that up because it, it is something that I noticed. There's a handful of songs, including the next one that we'll talk about, that have lyrics, but there's no lyrics printed in the liner notes. Um, and, and there's another example of like Llama doesn't have all of the lyrics uh, printed. No, in just notes. enough to confuse people. Yeah, yeah, there's like just there's like the first verse is in there, um, the chorus isn't, and uh, Glide doesn't, Tweezer doesn't, um, uh, Manteca doesn't really. I mean, but does it, it doesn't have, does it really have words? So I wonder if for these were they like, oh, listen, like anybody will figure that out, or maybe it was like. Do we really want to print that the lyrics of this song are "We're glad, glad, glad that you're a glide," uh, or you know, "Step into the freezer, Caesar with the tweezer" kind of thing, or should we just leave those out? I don't know. Wasn't important, as I said. They're etched in my soul. I I think the um, thing about Glide, one of the many great things about Glide is that the uh, the lighthearted silliness of the words really masks the. Uh, the massive amount of dexterity required to execute it properly, particularly at the, at the tempo, which they do it on the record. Um, uh, unfortunately that led to some disappointments, uh, quite a few years later, uh, which we won't dwell on, but, um, yeah, it's pretty rad here. And then we have a tweezer, Matt, I, uh, you've been known to have comments about the word, about the song tweezer. Yeah. This song sucks. Let's just move on. No, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> this, in fact, uh, fair uh, listeners and uh, audience members, uh, this is the song that brought Matt into the HF Pod fold. We did a couple episodes on it that you should uh, go back and listen to if you haven't heard it yet. We'll wait. Seriously, go listen to it. Uh, okay, for those of you who have listened to it or those of you resuming because you've just listened to it just now, I know you're exhausted, but let's talk a little bit more about Tweezer. Um, this is a straight-up smoker. I think that if Fish walked on stage in Mexico and played one just like this, there would be some people complaining about its duration, but it's got killer tension, hypertension. They build it and build it and build it, and then they do the proper breakdown, which, you know, they abandoned in the early 90s which we talked about on the big tweezer episode so we won't go into when that happened and uh ah it just it it really blasts your brain off and then descends through the breakdown towards the beautiful finish to this record yeah it it is great i mean this is probably why i bought the uh why I bought this album when I did, I, I latched onto Tweezer very, very early on in my fish fandom. Um, it's a, it's like the prototypical uh, kind of Tweezer, right? I mean, it's like got just a very straightforward linear jam, rip and tray solo. It's got the slow down ending uh, where everything sort of, you know, slows down and decomposes. Um, one thing that happens a lot in trays playing during his solo on this, um, as with Stash. There's a lot of tension built through the use of tritones. And um, that's that kind of like when he, when Trey's doing things like that really clashes with the rest of the band and what they're doing. Um, when you hear that, a lot, of, a lot of that in his like 91, 92 playing um, to build tension rather than, you know, because Tweezer doesn't kind of have a bunch of chord changes. You're just jamming an A minor um, as a way to build tension. Um, this was when I, Trey was really, really doing a ton of that. And um, it gives the song uh, a lot of kind of forward motion um and when it resolves at the end uh it's it's very very pleasing uh to your ears
this is kind of cool because like this whole last section of the record is I feel has like really amazing flow and kind of going back to what I was saying about this kind of representing a set of fish like earlier on you're more song based song 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 um, some little instrumental interludes thrown in there occasionally but now you've got like tweezer that kind of jams in a little a little bit um, our next song mango song it like segues basically directly into mango song mango kind of goes out there a little bit um, and there's the kind of um, sequencing at this point for the last kind of quarter of the album is really, really well thought and has a, a fantastic flow to it, I think. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, you know, Mango is just beautiful. Um, it it builds in its own weird and kind of beautiful way. It's really quite amazing, honestly. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I, I don't have a lot of specific comments about Mango. Mango is just a great song, and I think this one is executed perfectly as it should be on the record. And and then it leaves us... I just like the way it rises out of the silence of the ashes of the tweezer. Though. Yeah. That's the, that's really the thing awesome. that's really... I should probably get in there. Um, tweezer's just kind of boom, cratered, and then the little guitar riff just that begins it is so beautiful. Um, yeah, it's perfect placement. Then, uh, then we get into we get into some rock. Yeah, uh, Chalk Dust Torture, uh, which is a great song. I think Chalk Dust Torture to me is kind of like the hit fish song that never was. Like it probably sh- <laughs> it probably should have been and could have been. It still f- seems and sounds like a bit of like a theme song for them um you know this big refrain of can't this wait till i'm old can i live while i'm young and um very like kind of down the middle rock alt rock 90s alt rock uh tune here i don't love the recorded version though um it's got i think this is the third example on the record where you've got zappa inspired vocals but this time it's not just inflection uh, Trey's vocal is actually slowed down on the recording and it's, it messes with me a little bit. I, I don't know. I mean, like <laughs> maybe I, you know, this is the point at which fish and ween were both getting signed to Electra and then ween did a lot of this kind of stuff. So maybe there was some cross pollination happening there and they were trying to get a little bit experimental, but I kind of feel like if, they hadn't done that and they had recorded a more straightforward version of the song. It probably could have been a minor hit in the early nineties. And I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe there was just no way that was happening. Um, but it just feels like at, taken from 1992, like the song that could have had like a real good buzz around it and gotten them into much bigger rooms a lot faster. Maybe they make a video. It's get some MTV play and stuff like that, but it just, it wasn't to be. I don't know. What do, you, what do you think? That sounds like a horrible possible future that they could have had. But um, I don't know. Maybe maybe they could have had a hit. I don't know if it matters. Uh, I think I kind of think it's a ripper of a rock song. I think it works for me. Yeah, the vocals are a little weird, but it. I I, I maybe it's uh, serves as a filter to get rid of people who, you know, can't handle things being a little weird. And maybe that's, I think, definitely that's for the best. Comes 
gonna take a little weird with your rock, then this is you know, the wrong band for you. Uh, I I don't know. I hear this this version or any version just about. I, I can't not get pumped, um, and they they really kick that in hard. And but then it doesn't last <laughs> because then then they go into fought, which. Um, is a very deliberate swipe at new age music. Yeah. Specifically the chief perpetrator label Wyndham Hell. I mean Wyndham Hill. Yeah, I gave away the, the punchline, which of course is the original name to this was Wyndham Hell. Um, they did give us uh, some beautiful Michael Hedges records though. If you've never listened to Michael Hedges, you could check him out on the Wyndham Hill label. Uh, but yeah, they take this quiet acoustic guitar and pastoral sounds and drive a city right through the middle of it. <laughs> yeah. um, There's a re- that's a really really great sonic joke. Like you actually have to kind of pay attention to it, yeah. and not just get weirded out. But and this is one part where like I mentioned this earlier, like in re- reference to Manteca, like what we take off the record because this does seem like a throwaway except that it is like so well it's like a really great sonic creation the way that the sound effects kind of fade up at the end and then also the way that it kind of gives way after this to catapult um it just like feels so great it's a great studio creation to just put this weird shit together at the end of the record I would say, you know, with Catapult, I just love how these two, they just meld together. This is like what you hear on the white tape or something. This is some of that music concrete experiment stuff that Mike was doing, kind of writ slightly larger. Um, And it just, it, it sucks some of the pomposity out of Chalk Dust Torture that you know out of the room and just leaves you kind of mystified and then segues right into possibly the greatest two minutes 39 seconds of 1990s jam band history (laughs) well it's funny because before we get out of catapult you said something earlier about like it needs a voicemail recording somewhere on this which i think catapult in my mind always kind of sounded like like you've got this weirdness and thought and like the sound effects and then it's like mike drops in from like a you know a phone call or something and sings catapult real quick um which is <laughs> that like been a, a good a little little cassette compression effect would have been yeah, nice on that it, book, this yeah. was like a very like 90s alt rock thing to do to like drop in oh dude yeah this dude left this weird message on my answering machine so i put on and like i mean Jesus, people don't even like to listen to voicemail anymore. So, like, you're not going to have something like this get dropped into a record anymore. I don't know. Maybe that Sturgill Simpson record was probably like the last time it happened. Yeah, but I mean, before it was all over in those days. I mean, I could think Guns N' Roses did it on Guns User Roses, Illusion, Ben Ford's Beastie Five Boys. Did it. Yes, every yes. It, just about every other hip hop <laughs> record was doing it. it at the time. Yeah, and, and then it's thing. it's funny. Like, I always forget how catapult like goes straight into tweezer reprise which is like it's one of those things like if you just were to skip straight to tweezer reprise and listen to it it's amazing and the beginning is awesome but like if you just back up a little bit and hear the drop from catapult it's even gives it like more of a of a boost it's so awesome I mean, there's a reason why it's been played on the Super Bowl and the Olympics and all these, you know, different places. It's like one of the all-time great rock and roll rave-ups, you know? I mean, it's you, you just this should can't be, beat it. This should be Jock Jams 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why wasn't it not on Jock Jams? 
<laughs> oh my god now that's what i call jam bands yeah there we go so um yeah so taking this this is this is what i was talking about that ending of the record and how you can't move cavern back to here because what are you gonna do like a cavern encore this just it the whole final section of the record is so good and sequenced beautifully um that it, it just lands perfectly and and there we are you know you get to end a tweezer reprise and what are you gonna do you flip the tape and go back to llama it's yeah. time to start over again there you uh, go there you go so um you know Great, great record. Great major label debut. Uh, it's, of course, next time we're going to, on this series, we'll talk about Rift, um, which I think a lot of people would say is a big step forward uh, in terms of their trajectory and maturity of the sound. Um, but we'll we'll leave that all for another day when we need something to talk about. I, I, real quick, I want to note that uh, it hit the top heat seekers chart in 1992 peaked out at number 30 so uh there you go hit record almost almost a hit record what could have been it it actually did uh it was certified gold but not for nine years yeah it took these things take time absolutely <laughs> all right well uh jonathan uh it was great talking about a picture of nectar with you um we'll be back uh in a couple of weeks uh i think first off we'll probably be back with a mexico wrap-up um Speaking of which, I'm going to be in Mexico. RJ is going to be in Mexico. So come find us. Come say hi to us. Uh, we'll, we'll all be there on the resort for four days, hanging out on the beach, in the pool, uh, floating around in the in the Fishman floaty. And uh, we look forward to seeing uh, some or, or all of you out there. Uh, I'll be in Virginia. So send your sympathetic tweets to me. Jonathan's and... hold, holding it down for the webcast. Yeah, that, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, all right, well, we'll be back uh, in a couple weeks to talk about Mexico. Uh, lots of other cool things planned this spring. Uh, until then, thank you all for listening, and we'll, uh, we'll catch you soon. All right, be well, guys. Man, uh, Matt, RJ, hey, um, I don't know if you got that fish record, um, picture of Nectar. It's got 16 songs on it. Um, I think it's pretty good. It's like pretty weird, you know? There's like a tweezer and a tweezer reprise. Just like in concert. Tweezer isn't quite as good as the, the real life ones, like, you know, Eureka and others from the era. But, you know, man. It's pretty fucking cool. And anyway, I don't know if you know, but that's about a straight daughter. Um, that's what I heard anyway. And um, yeah, dude, there's a bunch of shit on that album, and I really like it. And, um, you know, Chuck does just a riff all the time. And so I hope you enjoy it. And um, if you guys, um, I'm in New Orleans. There's a lot going on here shows and stuff but just want to tell you about this album and, and my feelings on it and you know this is pretty cool man mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. 
From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born, to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.